Old Testament survey. Book of Esther, if y'all want to open there. We have our last historical book in our our layout of Scripture here, and our um, the way we have it structured. And we'll talk about structure in a minute. But the last historical book is Esther. After that, we move into what we call wisdom and poetry, and then we move into the prophets. So let me open in prayer. Father, every word, every syllable, every letter, every jot and tittle is inspired in Scripture by you. It's, it's your word. It's, it's breathed out through the prophets, through the apostles. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it better. Give us a greater knowledge of Scripture. Let us know your truth so that we might live it out. Let us, let us know it in our hearts for times of trouble, for times of tribulation and trials. Uh, help us to, to know it so well, Lord, that we can recall it to mind. <coughs> or when somebody asks for an answer, we can say, yes, that's in this book, this chapter. So let us start just by learning more about your Bible today, specifically the book of Esther, seeing your providence here. Impress that upon our hearts. Amen. All right, the book of Esther. Who's, who's got their favorite book as the book of Esther? Anybody want to admit that? I kind of like Esther early on because it's a, it's a simple book, historical book to understand. In some ways, it's simple. Um, Ruth and Esther are the, often the ones preached in a church. Uh, if you're going to have an Old Testament book preached, it's either going to be Jonah, Esther, or Ruth. Why? Because they're shorter. They're shorter, and you can kind of get through them at a quicker pace. Most churches today aren't into long series anyway, but even an expository church doesn't necessarily want to spend a decade in the Old Testament. So these are shorter, and they're simpler, easier to interpret. If you go into Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, Kings, those can be challenging. You have to really work with a lot of historical information and not to mention a lot of explanation of what's going on. I think we can understand Esther because it it fits kind of the pattern that we're used to in a story. The question that we're going to have today, and we'll come to this, is is who's the the real hero? Who's the the book really about? Is it about Esther? Is it about Mordecai? Or is it about God? Now everyone's about God, so we probably should just say human hero. Is it Esther or is it Mordecai? Or is it Vashti, the feminist? We'll say it's Vashti because she did not do what her husband told her to do. Um, so we'll look at some of those as we go. The title. The title is, for the first time, the same, no matter if you're reading Hebrew, Greek, or English. It's just Esther. Now, of course, in, in Hebrew and Greek, it's the name for Esther, but there's no difference in the names. There wasn't a, a different name chosen. It's just named after the person, Esther, who is the main character or one of the main characters in the book. The date of events are about 483 to 474, or you could go to 473 if you wanted, B.C. And I said a few weeks ago, it's in between the end of chapter 6 of Ezra and the beginning of chapter 7. Ezra doesn't explain much of uh, really anything about this gap in time. There's, I think, 57-year gap between the end of chapter 6 of Ezra and chapter 7 when Ezra actually comes on the scene. So let's look at Esther 1.3. Starts off, we'll just start in verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. We're going to talk about him in a moment. He's, he's the king. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India 
to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So this is the king of Persia. In those days, as King Ahasuerus uh, sat on his royal throne, which is at the citadel in Susa. Susa at this time is the capital of Persia. And the empire goes all the way from Ethiopia, that's in Africa, to India. So all of the Middle East, all of what we call Turkey, uh, all the way across to India and down into parts of Africa. And then verse 3, In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants. The army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. So the third year of his reign... We'll talk about who this guy is, but it's pretty certain we know now. And we can date that to 483 B.C. Now look at 3.7. And the first month, uh, which is the month Nisan, that's the Hebrew month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So starts in the third year, ends in his, or continues, I guess the story kind of wraps up in his 12th year. So you probably have read Esther and thought all these things are happening pretty quickly. But there's actually quite a gap just between chapters 1 and 3. Most of the events are going to take place near the end of this 9 or 10 year span here. Where is this thing at in the Hebrew Bible? Where is Esther at? Well, it's not like ours. Again, the Hebrew Bibles are arranged differently. It's between Lamentations and Daniel. And it is where the Jews get the Feast of Purim. So if you've ever heard of the Feast of Purim, uh, that's where they get it. That's in 920 through 32 we'll get there but the the ending of the book essentially is where they get this feast it's not commanded in scripture it's a feast that is commanded at this point by in Esther by the secular rulers but the Jews continue to celebrate it to this day in fact they get out this book and read it during the feast of Purim in the synagogues they have a scroll they just pull it and it's the scroll of Esther, and they read it. So here's what it looks like, again, in the Jewish Old Testament. And we see Esther's over here. We don't see our typical English, our Protestant, I will say Protestant English Bible order. This kind of helps us see where the Jews thought it would go. So they had the law, the first five books. Then they had the prophets, one group, which included the former, right, the the early prophets, Joshua through Kings. Then they went right into Isaiah through the 12, the minor prophets. So they did the law and the prophets and the writings. Remember Jesus says that, the law, the prophets, the writings. And then everything else gets kind of lumped into this group called the writings, the Ketubim or Ketuvim. Uh, and Esther is in there. And these five books, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, songs, actually all of these right here, these five books. These five books get associated together, and they're called the Megaloth, or the Megalaw. And these are five scrolls that the Jews will put in a case together. They put them in wooden cases, sometimes with a glass front. They're called the Ark, because Ark means what? Wooden case, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Well, started out as wood, ends up being gold. Noah's Ark, big wooden container. Well, the Jews today, they will put their scrolls back into the ark, which is a, a wooden case or a wooden container. And so they pull these out at different feasts throughout the year and read them, uh, Esther being at Purim. 
So why do we care about this? Well, it's, first of all, interesting, I think, to see how the Jews thought. Secondly, Jesus uses this order. And thirdly, it teaches us that the order is probably not inspired. It can, you know, I don't think it's inspired. Most Protestants don't think it's inspired. Uh, so we can rearrange it. And where do we get, does anybody know where we get our order from? Who would go against this order if this is how the Jews have always had it? Where do we get our order from that we have today? So the reformers, they kind of set the, they, they, they sort of set it for us Protestants, but where did they get it from? Nope, going back earlier than that. Council of Trent happens just after the Reformation. We get so many of our book names from this. Septuagint, that's what this means. This means 70, I talked about this last week. Septuagint, what does Septuagint mean? It means 70. 70 guys supposedly wrote this really quick for the Jews in Egypt. So the Jews are out of the land around 200 B.C. Nobody can read Hebrew. The few guys who can need to translate it into Greek so that Jews can read their Bibles. And so they make the Septuagint. The Septuagint gets picked up by early Christians as their Old Testament. Many of the New Testament writers quote not from the Hebrew, but they quote from the Septuagint, which is a faithful translation, not perfect, not perfect, but it's faithful to the original Hebrew. So where do we get our order? We get it because it was rearranged in the Septuagint. And the Reformers didn't see a reason. No one in Christian history has seen a real issue with that order in the Septuagint. It's just a matter of cutting out the Apocrypha. Uh, but that's for a different class. All right, who is the king Ahusaurus? This is Xerxes the Great, or Xerxes I. He lived from 519 to 465. Uh, he only reigns, though, from about 486 B.C. to 465. This is uh, trying to make a colored portrait of him from different descriptions. I think I have another one here, too. Uh, I think that's supposed to be Esther there. might be Vashti, but I think it's supposed to be Esther. There's a pretty decent movie that came out a few years ago. On I think it's called One Night with the King. It's not it's not 100% accurate, but it's, it's, it gives you an idea at least of what things would have been like at that time. It used to be thought that Ahusaurus was Artaxerxes, but now through further discoveries, everyone's pretty much agreed that this is Xerxes the Great. Now, the thing about Xerxes is we know a lot about him from Greco-Roman history. Who knows their history? Who, what did Xerxes try to do that he failed at? Yeah, he tried to attack Greece. And in fact, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, it says that one of the kings of Persia will anger, will inflame the Greeks. And you know who? what happens later is that Xerxes comes and he tries to attack Greece and he makes them really mad, but he ends up losing in the end and he goes home kind of beaten up. And that probably takes place in this 10-year span here. But what did that do when it angered the Greeks? What happened as a result of that? little secular history here for the history buffs. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great gets the Greeks all together and says, we're going to pay back those Persians for what Xerxes came and did earlier in an earlier generation. We're going to be done with the Persians once and for all. We're going to go and wipe them out, which he does, which then sets up the Greek language and all of the Middle East and sort of uh, puts Israel in a certain place where the Romans would later come in and sets the stage for the New Testament. So what about Xerxes? 
he wanted to prove how strong he was, and he wanted to go across and conquer Greece. They were the cultural elite, and he wanted to go and wipe them out. It's thought, maybe in Esther 1-3, that this is his planning party for the attack on Greece. We can't prove that, but it certainly lines up in the same year that he attacks Greece, or starts this long campaign. It matches up with the beginning, uh, his third year uh, of his reign. So, Uh, Verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of all of his provinces. So why would he call everyone together? Very possible because it lines up with the same year, his third year of his reign, that he's organizing this massive campaign against Greece. And then his wife is going to embarrass him in front of everyone. Or he thinks she's embarrassing him. So where do we get this... uh, this name from? Well, it's Hebrew. Ahusaurus is Hebrew. Now in Persian, I can't pronounce it. Who knows Persian? All right. So this is a Persian name. So what we see here is the Hebrew name just is kind of a, a reworking of the Persian. But then the Greeks had their own names separate. And that's where we get it, Xerxes. Uh, again, 1-3 is the party likely included planning for the invasion of Greece. So what's the theme of this book? It's not how wonderful Esther is. It's not even really how wonderful Mordecai is. But it's preservation through providence. God will preserve his people. And he'll do it providentially. He doesn't have to act miraculously to preserve his people. That is not required of God. He controls all things. He controls all rulers. And so he can preserve his people through just normal providential means. Why is it in the book? to teach us that while the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to God, they were still protected by God from Gentile attack. The whole story revolves around an attempted attack to assassinate, to really commit a holocaust against the Jewish people. And God puts a stop to it, but not directly. Not directly. In fact, you'll read through this, and there's not a mention of God in the book. You'll go through it, and you'll wonder, where's God? Where's God? Why? In fact, some people have said this shouldn't be in the Bible because there's no mention of God. But God's all over is the point of this book, that God's everywhere and that we don't have to specifically mention him and the recounting of this event to know that he's there. An outline. Let's just go through the book as we look at the outline. The first is the threat to the Jews. So what happens? How does this even come about? Well, Esther becomes queen first. Let's go back to chapter 1. So they're having this large party. We pick up in verse 4. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. He's showing off himself, all that he has for 180 days. That's a long party. He's trying to impress all of these mighty people. And often we think of ancient rulers as being Uh, A dictator, they are, the dictator, but that they solely rule. Well, the truth is any of these nobles and princes could at any time try to rebel, form a party, and overthrow the king. So it was common that these kings would show off their power and their might to help people understand their place in his government, in his empire. And verse 5, when these days were completed, the king gives a banquet. So he gives a big banquet. It was seven days. So he showed them everything for 180 days. Then seven days for a banquet. Everybody's there at the citadel, at the, the home base there in Susa. The greatest to the least. 
in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So from the greatest person working in, or controlling land in the empire to the least. And there were hangings of fine white and violet linen uh, on down how wonderful it is. And then nine, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to the king. So the queen, he probably had many wives, but the the big one, the, the important queen, the one that gets the title, queen, uh, as his wife, has a banquet for the women because they're not having a party together. It's separate. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which means he had drank quite a bit, he commanded uh, all of these men here, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So he showed off everything. Now the crown jewel, that's going to be his wife, Vashti. I think uh, the records in Persia call her a mistress, but names can change uh, depending on what the Hebrews used to, to name this woman. Uh, I think Vashti means something like beautiful or excellent in the Persian language. Uh, so he says he wants the, the queen to be brought before him, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Then he says to the wise men who understood, understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. So these are his best advisors, his seven princes of Persia and Media, it says, who had access to the king's presence. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs, in the presence of the king and the princes. Basically, she embarrasses him by not coming. And uh, this guy, Mimikin, Mimikin says she has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, the king commanded the queen to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. So it sets a bad precedent. It sets a bad precedent, they're saying. This doesn't look good if, if it, the king's wife doesn't obey the king. Now what's this going to say to every person in the kingdom? So they come up with this plan. 18, this day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. There will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and, and let it be written. So they write a law that you must basically obey your husband as a wife. Chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of the king had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem. Harem means many wives and concubines. He already has a harem, but he wants some new ones brought in so he can choose his favorite to be the official queen. And put them in the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given to them. Let the young lady who pleases the, the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So they're going to look for a replacement. And the way you go about that is you look at all the virgins in the land that are unmarried women, young women, 
and the governors and the princes will see them, suggest them. They'll come up for some years to the palace to be prepped, to be maybe taught how to act in the royal court, to have makeup, cosmetics, lotions, all these spa treatments for a long time, to try to beautify them even more. And then one will be selected. Verse 8, it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of this eunuch who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him, meaning that she was pleasing to his sight and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food. Definitely want to get fed. Uh, if you're going to be having an opportunity to be chosen, you want to be healthy. And I gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So she's going to be in a place of prominence, not by her own doing. Uh, let's back up to verse 7 to see who Esther is. Actually, let's go back to verse 5. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So this is from Saul's line, King Saul, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So the man Mordecai is mentioned first, and he's going to also be mentioned last in the book. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther's Jewish name, Hadassah, uh, or Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. So it's his uncle's daughter. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So she gets noticed, she gets selected. She sort of, just by her beauty and probably her, her demeanor, her countenance, her attitude, uh, gets raised up in this group of women called the harem. Uh, they're already owned by the king, essentially. He's now going to choose from them his favorite. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Now that's an interesting verse. She doesn't say she's a Jew. No mention of God in this book. And even Mordecai tells her not to make it known. We might think, yeah, that's prudent. That makes for a good story. But think about it in the rest of Scripture. When has that ever been the case? Where God's people didn't make themselves known. Verse 11, Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So, it goes on, she becomes the queen, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the providence, uh, provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people. There it is again. No one knows she's a Jew. Even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So Mordecai, over he, he finds out about a plot to kill the king. He makes it known and he is celebrated. Now, chapters 3 through 4 is this guy Haman. Haman's plot against the Jews. Haman hates the Jews. He wants to destroy the Jews. 
So he's going to come up with a plot to convince the king to wipe out all the Jews in the land. Now, who is Haman? 3.1. After these events, uh, the king promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. What's an Agagite? King Agag. Who's King Agag? The Amalekites, who were supposed to be destroyed by Saul. He killed most of them, but he didn't kill Agag. And guess who else ends up in captivity? One of the descendants of King Agag, whom Saul did not kill, even though God commanded him to kill Agag, he didn't. So many lessons from this. Look what happens when you know, people don't follow what God says. Uh, this happens over and over in Scripture. But also, who is Mordecai a descendant of? Kish. Who's Kish? Saul's father. So we have a descendant, basically a relative of, of King Saul, who was supposed to kill Agag, and a relative of Agag. So do you think that a descendant of Agag is going to like the Jews? King Saul almost wiped out everyone. Later, David would pretty much wipe them out, but there's a few that get taken into captivity later, so they must have survived somewhere. There's going to be great hatred against the Jews. This is why he wants to kill them. So, back to 3.1. Uh, and it, this man was advanced. He was established. He had authority over all the princes. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Could be because of Mordecai's religious beliefs. Could just be because he knows who Haman is and who he's descended from. So he's not going to bow. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So why isn't he bowing down? Well, it's because he's a Jew. Haman knows who they are. He hates them. He comes up with a plot. He's going to kill them all. And Esther, chapter 4, learns of this plot. She learns of the plot. What is she going to do? Chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So he, he's showing a sign of grief, repentance. Uh, he's very saddened by this. He's probably assuming he's a follower of God. He's calling out to God. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king went that the Jews would be killed, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. So there's going to be a certain day they're going to gather the Jews and kill them. And this message has gone out to the land so everybody can get ready. And so the Jews are praying. They're asking for God to change this. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came. They told her and the queen writhed in great anguish and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther uh, summoned one of the king's eunuchs and ordered him to go to Mordecai, find out what's happening. So he went out. Mordecai tells him in verse 7, 
all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So the king's going to benefit greatly financially from this massacre, which helped persuade the king to do it in the first place. Um, He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her to order her to go on into the king to implore his favor, to plead with him. So the eunuch comes back. He tells Esther. Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to the eunuch and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter, that he may live, And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So she's not seen the king for 30 days. If she goes in, that's against the law. He will kill her. That's that's trying to usurp his authority. And the king will kill anybody who comes in that's not been summoned. So they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine, this is kind of the famous uh, passage from Esther, Do not imagine that you... And the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. So don't think you're going to get out of this, Esther, just because no one knows you're a Jew. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So who's heard that phrase, such a time as this? That God has appointed every time, and he's appointed her to be in this position for such a time as this. It's God's providence. It's God's sovereignty. So I think we do see some some sort of belief, certainly, uh, in God from Mordecai. He he seems to trust in the sovereignty of God. He seems to indicate, look, God's going to save us anyway, so it's just a matter of, do you want to be a part of this or not? If you want to be a part of it, that's going to be great. God will bless you. If you don't, God will save us some other way and he'll punish you for ignoring your responsibility here. Your whole house, your whole family will be destroyed. That's pretty serious coming from your, is it our uncle? We call him the uncle, but it was his uncle's daughter. Cousins? Does that make cousins? First cousins? Who knows all that? First cousins, second cousins, third cousins. First cousins. So we often say, have you heard Mordecai's the uncle? You guys heard that before? Yeah, they're cousins, though. And so, but he's much older than her because he's taking care of her. She's a young woman, probably a teenager, uh, I'm assuming, and he's going to be an older man. But anyway, he's telling her, look, you better take this opportunity God has given you. In fact, he believes she's been put there. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. Thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's kind of another famous line here from this book. If I perish, I perish. Whatever happens. And it's a good attitude to have as Christians. We've got to obey the Lord. If we die because of it, we die. At least we're obeying the Lord. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So that's the first half, the first four chapters. Uh, that's the threat. The second section of the book is the triumph of the Jews. Mordecai is going to triumph over Haman, and Israel will triumph over her enemies. 
So Esther plans a banquet. She has an idea. She's going to invite the king and invite Haman. So Haman thinks he's very special. He's been invited. He's been honored. 5.9, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house, sent to, for his friends and his wife. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches. This book is all about pagans bragging about how rich and glorious they are. Uh, he recounted the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. So he got to go to the first banquet with the king and her. He's going to get to go to another one. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So then his wife speaks up. Have gallows 50 cubits high made. And in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Good advice, huh? There's his wife saying, just take care of that problem. Build some gallows, hang him. Hang his whole household. Kill him. So the Jews already are all going to be killed. And now Mordecai is going to get a hanging very quickly uh, if Haman gets his way. So the king plans to honor Mordecai. During uh, during that night, see if this isn't God's providence here in chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that's God. The king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. This isn't the Bible book called Chronicles. This is just Persian history book. Bring me the Persian history book that includes everything my forefathers have done. It was found written. What Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, these were guys who were going to assassinate the king, and two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, they had sought to lay hands on the king. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who's in the court? Find me some noble that's in the court to bless and honor this guy Mordecai. Let a servant come and and help me with this. Now Haman had just entered. God's providence. It's not an accident. That's not just chance. Now, Haman, don't you just love the scriptures? Now, Haman just entered. Just happened to be there. Interesting. So, Haman just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So, he's coming to ask that Mordecai be hanged. The king wants Mordecai to be honored and raised up. So, this is where the story is going to turn. This is one of those plot reversals. The thing's going to completely hinge and turn around. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. The king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? So he's talking about Mordecai, the king is. What should we do, Haman? What do you think? Haman said to himself, so he's speaking to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor... Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and in whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes 
and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Complete reversal. So now things are going to start going back up where they had been going down before this. And the king said to Haman, Quickly, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall on in anything of all that you have said. Do not fall short Sorry, of anything of all that you have said. So it's your idea, Haman. I love that idea. Go do it. So Haman took the robe, took the horse. He went and did it. And thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor, he says. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. He told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened. So before he's bragging, now the next day, not so good. It's completely been reversed. Then his wise men, so Haman has wise men, and his wife, Zeresh, say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but surely will fall before him. So they even understand, look, these Jews, they follow a powerful God. And if he's overcome you, we're done for. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So these things are happening quickly now. They have this banquet that Esther had prepared, and and they're enjoying the party. The king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. Chapter 7, the king said to Esther on the second day, uh, so two days already into the banquet as they drank their wine, What is your petition, Queen Esther? So the whole purpose of the banquet is to ask the king something. It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. So he seems like he really loves Esther. And he will, he's willing to give her half the kingdom. Then Queen Esther replies, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance of the king. And the king asked him, Who is he? Who is he? Who would presume to do this? And Esther says, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman, who's right there. Then Haman becomes terrified before the king. The king arises in his anger from drinking wine and went out into the palace garden. He's going to go cool off, figure out what to do. Haman stays. He begs for his life from the queen, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So he's begging for his life. The king says, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And the word went out of the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. Then they go and hang him and his whole family on those gallows that he had prepared for her. So a complete reversal. Now chapter 8, Mordecai is promoted. The king's decree is reversed. So much so that now it's not the Jews who are going to die, but the Jews who are going to kill everybody who had gathered them up and was waiting to kill them. So the Jews end up, by the king's decree, able to take revenge, take vengeance by the hand of God upon uh, these pagans who are about to wipe them out. There was not going to be any more Jews if that decree had been fulfilled, which would undermine the promises of God in the Old Testament which meant no Messiah. There's so many what-ifs. But of course, God's working behind the scenes, His providence. 
The Jews destroy their enemies in chapter 9. The Feast of Purim is instituted in 920. Mordecai recorded these events. He sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the same month, Adar, annually. So every year, by the king's decree, you Jews should celebrate this, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, P-U-R, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. So that's where the name Purim comes from. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. So that's kind of the summary of the whole plot. It turns on his own head that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called the days Purim after the name of Pur. So that's where the Jewish holiday comes from. They go, go on to triumph. And of course Mordecai gets elevated in chapter 10 even more. So he's the first Jew mentioned. He's the last Jew mentioned. Some would argue the book should even be named Mordecai and not Esther. Because it is more about what Mordecai does. Esther is important, but she seems to not be the one doing most of the speaking and the action in the book. So now King, in chapter 10, he, he laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlines of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to the king. This makes us think of many Old Testament characters, doesn't it? Joseph who was second to the Pharaoh. Uh, he's second to the king here. He's elevated. He's exalted. He was about to be killed, and suddenly, based on God's providence, he's exalted. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to the king, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good for his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So if you haven't read it, read it. We just, we just read about a third or half of it there. It's a great book for God's providence. And it pretty much reads like a modern novel, is why I think we like it so much. Key chapters we just looked at, Haman persuades the king to annihilate the Jews in chapter 3. 6 and 7 is where it changes around. Mordecai is honored. Haman is hanged. And by the end... The Jews destroy their enemies and inaugurate the Feast of Purim. Key verse here. Uh, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. The idea is God has sovereignly placed Esther in her position of influence, which we have to think about. Has God put us in this place, in this time? You'll find yourself in situations like that. Who's to say you're not supposed to do a certain thing that God has put you in that place to do? And it's not like, his whole plan will be thrown off if you don't do it. He'll find someone else. It's kind of the idea from our point of view. We know from God's point of view, he already has it all planned out. It will happen according to his plan, of course. People, Esther, she's a Jewish maiden of great beauty who became the queen of Persia. This is pretty big. A queen of Persia, someone that we can connect to an empire that ruled basically that part of the world, ruled the world at the time. Her courage paved the way for the 
uh, preservation of the Jews within the Persian Empire. And so why are they doing so well, let's say? Why are they back in the land? Why are they being blessed? Why is it easy on them for so long? Well, because of this incident. Uh, Mordecai, Esther's older cousin and palace official, he was used by God to deliver the Jews. Haman, Amalekite, captain of the princes who plotted destruction of the Jews, and Ahasuerus, the Persian king Xerxes I. Let's talk about some key distinctions. There's no mention of God's name, I already said. That's very, very unusual for the Old Testament. As I said, many, I think it may be even Luther who said it shouldn't probably be in there. Many questioned this book, whether it should be in there. There's no mention of the Holy Land, the place of the Jews. All the other books, people are praying towards the temple. They're considering going back. They're praying that God would take them back to rebuild Jerusalem. No mention here of Palestine, Jerusalem, the temple, the law, the prayer, nothing. What about the, the fasting? Yeah, the fasting and um, prayer. Were they praying? No, just fasting, right? Yeah. Um, that was typical in ancient would, times. Would, it could be. be kind of the hand hand thing? It could be. It was, Of course, you know, there's no specific commands on when people are to fast unless it was said for this feast or that, that time period in the Old Testament? It could be. We'll talk in a minute whether they were spiritual Jews or unspiritual <laughs> in their observances. But the book itself has no mention of these things explicitly. The big thing is the reversal of human plans because God is sovereign. So God's sovereignty is in every book of the Bible. This whole book is about God's sovereignty. There's a focus on the Jewish people. There's a focus on the hatred and fear of the Jews and then a deliverance of the Jews. So that, those, these, these last three are common throughout the historical books. God delivers his people. They're in trouble from the Canaanites, God delivers them. They're in trouble from uh, the Amal- Amalekites, God delivers them. So all the way through, even when they go to captivity, God will deliver them and bring them back. They've already, some of them have already gone back in the first section of Ezra. Good commentary again. Uh, New American Commentary recommended this a lot. If you're going to buy a set, maybe on Bible software or a set of books for your home library, for the Old Testament, this set would be good, especially if you plan on teaching these books. Let's talk about the interpretive issues. We've got about six minutes. And really, this is a, this is a longer one. It's, you're you're going to probably say this is easy, right? Is this book a complete fiction? Some would say it is. They say it's a parable. It's an allegory. These are professing Christian scholars who would say this is just made up to teach a lesson. Of course, some of the same scholars say that about the beginning of Genesis, and they say this about other fantastic uh, events that happen in the Bible. Others say it's just a novel. It reads like a modern novel. This is just an example of a Hebrew novel. We can cancel that out because there really is no such thing as what we call a novel until about the 1700s. So... No one would have read this and thought, oh, that's a novel because those things didn't exist. Either you had a long poem, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, or you had the law or history or prophecy written down. You did not have a fictional story told in novel form until much later in history. And so lastly, historical narrative. Which one do y'all think I'm going to choose before we get into the details? Yeah, historical narrative means it really happened. Historical means it actually happened in history, and a narrative means this is a recounting of it. It's not complete fiction. Why do the people say that? Well, they say 
Six months of feasting in chapter 1 by the king, that's ridiculous. Half a year of feasting can't happen. Well, things like that did happen in ancient times. We don't have a specific detail of how long they went, but we do know that the things went on for many months. Why wouldn't they? Feasts in general, religious feasts, went on for days and weeks. Why wouldn't a king do that to show off? Also, a year-long beauty preparation, that seems like a lot in 212. Why does it take that long for these women to get beautified? When the turn of each young lady came to go into the king after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. So this is like spa treatments for a year to get ready. And probably had a lot to do with their beliefs and how things worked. And, you know, they couldn't just send them in for uh, a new weight loss or fitness program or whatever. They, they have to go through all of these oils and cosmetics and spices. And it's probably some sort of purification that the Persians, each culture believed there was a certain period of purification. And this is the king. This is the, their mighty king. So uh, that's totally reasonable too. Uh, we don't know enough about Persian culture. Pretty much the culture was, we know some, but it was pretty much destroyed by Alexander the Great. The height in 514 seems to be too much for people to believe. Um, then Zeresh's wife said, have a gallows 50 cubits high. Who's got another translation that tells us how, how tall is 50 cubits? 75 feet. That seems a bit high, doesn't it? Seems unbelievable, but it's a big city. And you want everybody to see, you build really high gallows. And it's not to say that the that gallows themselves, I mean, the, the whole thing that they would have had built, the whole complex or steps and everything, um, that, that's not beyond possible. Yeah, we might not be used to it, but this is not just to kill the guy. If he wanted to do that, he would have found other means. This is to show off how low and degrading Mordecai is. And the number of men killed in 916, that just seems like too much for people to believe. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives, rid themselves of their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day. So 75,000 seems like a lot. It's not recorded anywhere in Persian history, but who would record such a thing? 75,000 people, and it's spread out through all these provinces from India to Ethiopia up to modern-day Turkey. So uh, there are bigger numbers in the Bible than that of people being killed. That's totally acceptable. If we're going to throw that out, then we have a lot of things we need to throw out, which we're not going to do. Another historical issue they say is, look, the wife was named Amestris, and the Bible says it's Vashti. What are we going to do with that? Well, the king's name was Xerxes, and the Bible says it's Ahusurus. There are different names in Hebrew for Greek and Persians. That shouldn't be hard for us to accept. Not hard at all. There are different names even amongst English and versus Spanish, isn't there? I mean, some are similar, but some are different, right? What's, uh, what's James in Spanish? Santiago. Santiago. That's not James. That has nothing to do with it. Well, different versions of the same name. So we can totally accept that with two different, three different languages, actually, if you factor in eventually Greek translations. And there were 20 satrapies, 20 provinces, not the 120 mentioned. But again, satrapy is just the idea of a certain province, and you can have sections of a province and provinces within provinces. So the, the 120 is the idea that look how mighty the Persian Empire was. 
it's not necessarily, I don't think, saying, oh, go to history books and you'll see that there's 120. All right, why is it historical narrative? Well, there's a use of the word and. And in the Old Testament, especially the history books, you see and this happened and this happened. It doesn't show up in your English translation. Usually it's just the word then. Then this happened, then this happened, or now. Now this happened. So chapter 1, verse 1, is this idea in Hebrew, and it took place. In our translations, now it took place, which is a sign in Hebrew that this is a narrative. It's historical. It's called the wow from this little letter that starts it. Looks like that. A wow consecutive. That's a wow. You didn't realize that. That little letter up there is a wow. So that always signifies to the Hebrew person, this is historical. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament doesn't follow English grammar rules? You're not supposed to start a sentence with and. But it does because that's what's in the Hebrew. And this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. All the way through. When you're translating, if you learn Hebrew someday, it's, it's pretty easy because every sentence starts with this idea of and, and, and. Also, there's lots of references chronologically. And there's these references, search the historical records. You don't think this is true, the writer says. Go and search the records. You can search them. And it even ends the book with that, doesn't it? Two. All these accomplishments, all the strength and greatness of Mordecai, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Why would the author write that if people couldn't go and open these history books at the time and look it up? We don't have these today to look up, but it's historical. It was meant to be historical. It would have been rejected right away if they couldn't find it in the histor- historical book. So I'm going with historical narrative. Just to work you through all that. I know you all agree with me, but hopefully you don't think it's complete fiction. All right, last question. We can't really answer this fully. Uh, the nature of Mordecai and Esther. Were they godly, righteous Jews? Were they unspiritual Jews? Are they kind of, some days they're more spiritual than others? Or can we not know? Now the easy answer is always to say we can't know. But let's just talk about it for a bit. Um, there's no mention of God. They don't seem to call upon God Here's the biggest one for me. They don't pray to God, or at least we don't see that. So you might say, well, so big deal. It wasn't recorded that they prayed. This would be very unusual for a book of the Bible focused on specific people. They're in all this danger, and they don't even pray or mention prayer. They fast. They fast, but does it say that they pray? Unless I've missed it somewhere. I know she says go and fast. But I do not think that they are ever said to have prayed. So I think I'll accept uh, B or C. Uh, I don't think they're an example of a righteous Jew, what's called, a, what's called here as a spiritual Jew, because there's not this mention. It seems like Esther's a little reluctant, but then Mordecai's telling her, don't make it known that you're a Jew. So they're scared when they shouldn't be. Other times they seem to come forth probably... We'll just say, look, they're followers of God, but they're very frightened at times. And the point is not them and how great they are, but how great God is in his providence and in his sovereignty. Were the, uh, were the, was the king considered a god? Uh, they worshipped a god, Ahara Mazda. Where we actually get the Mazda name for our vehicles from. But they considered the king like a god. I don't think the Persians worshipped their king directly like other cultures did. But you can consult your Persian history and 
notify me if I'm off on that. If you have questions about uh, the class or about anything, let me know. I'll be here for a few minutes right after we're done. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for our time together. We now pray that as we worship together, that we might exalt your name, that we might not only see your providence and your sovereignty, but also how you've saved us and put us together in one body here called the church. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.